evidence and answers. How do science and the Christian faith relate to one another? Many believe that science deals with facts, and Christianity deals with emotion and faith. Many believe science and Christianity are at odds, but is this really the case? Does the Christian worldview best explain the scientific data? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today in part one of this interview, Pat and his guest, Dr. Fazal Rana will address some of the most challenging questions and issues regarding Christianity and science. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the challenges of today. Well, science and the Christian faith and how do the two relate to one another is always a point of interest because science is so dominant. It's such a dominant force in the arena of academics and in the culture today. And we're talking about a new book today, Thinking About Evolution. And we have the chief editor online with us here, Dr. Fazale Rana. Dr. Rana is vice president of research and apologetics at Reasons to Believe. He's the author of several fantastic books that we highly recommend. Who Was Adam? Creating Life in the Lab, The Cells Design, and Humans 2.0. Dr. Rana earned a PhD in chemistry with an emphasis in biochemistry from Ohio University. He's a regular on the show and he's been to Hawaii a few times. So, Fuzz, welcome back to Evidence and Answers. Pat, thanks for having me. I wish I could be in Hawaii with you in person. I love the state of Hawaii, but uh, still glad to join you via the phone. Yes. Now, you got a new book. That has just come out. It's called, you're the editor on this one. Several great authors contributed to this one, Thinking About Evolution. And so tell us, what's what's the motivation for this book here? Well, you know, uh, when it comes to the topic of, of evolution and how it relates to the Christian faith, this is a, a well-worn topic, you know, where there's many, many fine books out there. And so the question becomes, why should anybody write another book about evolution and why should somebody want to pick up a book about evolution and read it? And so we uh, decided that the best approach to take in the book would be to adopt an approach where we try to teach people how to think about evolution, how to identify some of the key questions and key concepts that they need to be aware of. And then in a number of the chapters in the book, we then illustrate how to use those concepts with specific examples that come from evolutionary biology. So it really is designed to be a book about how to think about evolution as a Christian, more so than really telling people what to think, you know, or what to, to what view they should hold. Yes, Fuzz, the debate is in the scientific arena. The argument is that intelligent design or ideas, we're going to call it here on the show, ideas, really religion and not science. It belongs in the religion department. Tell us, how old is the ID movement and has ID been able to find a spot at the table, you know, in the academic and in the scientific arena? Well, you know, in many respects, the, the, the formal intelligent design movement is probably, I don't know, I would guess 25, maybe 30 years old now. I've been involved with ideas related to intelligent design for well over 20 years, 25 years now. So the movement has, has gained some age. Sadly, though, the arguments for design of biological systems and even the design of the universe continue to mount, and even though 
challenges to the evolutionary worldview and the evolutionary paradigm also continue to mount. It's very hard for ID to get a, a proper place at the scientific table. And largely it's because of really philosophical considerations about how science operates more so than, again, the quality of the evidence for intelligent design and really the quality of the challenges uh, against a, a strict materialistic version of evolution. Yeah, I'm, you know, wondering, as you stated, the evidence continues to mount. Why is there such strong resistance to allowing ID, you know, just a spot at the table? Yeah, well, it ultimately has to do with the way in which science operates today, which is built around a framework called methodological naturalism. And that's a, you know, a $25 term that just simply means that when you engage in the practice of, of science, you operate as if God does not exist. Sometimes it's called provisional atheism or benchtop atheism, where when you engage in the practice of science, regardless of your worldview, regardless of your religious belief, you, again, operate as if God doesn't exist, which means that the only type of explanations that are permitted are materialistic explanations, natural process, mechanistic explanations. Any appeal to agency, any appeal to the supernatural is forbidden uh, a priori before you even begin your scientific investigation. And the net effect of that means that even if the evidence counts against the evolutionary paradigm, even if there's mounting evidence for design, you cannot go down that path scientifically speaking. Those explanations are forbidden. And so in that framework, it's very difficult, in fact, impossible to truly falsify evolution or even aspects of the evolutionary paradigm. By default, you must have evolutionary explanations, but it's for philosophical reasons, not for scientific reasons. Yeah, and, you know, I think that young people going into the sciences need to understand that, what shall we say, worldview bias position that's there so that if they would question Darwin's theory, I mean, they're going to face some resistance, if not just open uh, hostility there, as, as a lot of you in the ID camp face. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's something that's so important for Christians to understand and for, you know, the Christian students and Christian parents to understand is that in the science classroom, again, any appeal to agency is considered, again, to be non-scientific. It's considered to be philosophical or religious, but it's not considered to be scientific. And therefore, the argument would be it has no place in science. And the backlash against the intelligent design movement has been one of increasing hostility towards that position so that now, if you are a person of faith and you entertain the prospects of intelligent design in the academy, many times you are persecuted for that perspective, again, regardless of the quality of the evidence that you bring to the table, regardless of the quality of the reasoning that you employ. And to me, what is really tragic about this, Pat, is that at the end of the day, science actually does have the toolkit available to it to detect the work of agency in nature. In fact, this bias against intelligent design feels a bit disingenuous to me because there are disciplines in science that are actually intelligent design disciplines. You know, SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, is predicated on the ability of astronomers to distinguish between electromagnetic radiation emanating from a natural source 
and one emanating from a hypothetical intelligent civilization. Or archaeologists can pick up a rock and tell you, was that rock shaped from natural processes or was it shaped through the work of an intelligent agent, some kind of hominin, let's say, like Neanderthals or an early modern human. And so science does have the wherewithal to detect agency, and you can easily apply this to biological systems and determine whether or not those systems or again, the work of natural processes or the work of agency. So this is part of the purview of science. But yet, again, for philosophical reasons, these explanations are just simply taken off the table. Yes. Now, Fuzz, does philosophy and theology have a role in science? I think it actually does. You know, clearly, you know, as we just have discussed, philosophy is really very important in yes. terms of how you think about the nature of the scientific enterprise. And so there's a lot of issues in the philosophy of science that do have bearing on, you know, the creation evolution debate, the intelligent design evolution debate. But theology is also a central factor, too, in science. I mean, even the idea of thinking that the, the world around us conforms to the laws of nature that are uniform throughout the universe and that are constant for, uh, throughout all the time periods of the universe is a, a theological view. It, more so than anything else, right? You know, and this is necessary to engage in science. And the only worldview that I know of that holds the view that the universe is constant, that the laws of nature are constant throughout the universe is the Christian worldview. In fact, it was this kind of worldview thinking that laid the philosophical and theological foundations for the birth of modern science in Christian Western Europe and for its flourishing as well. Or if you take the view that the universe is intelligible and that as human beings, we have the wherewithal to understand the universe through our intellectual capacities and through our, cogni you know, our cognition and our, through our sensory apparatus as human beings, that is, again, a theological perspective that you're adopting. And again, it's the Christian worldview that argues that human beings are made in God's image and therefore can understand the universe have the wherewithal to understand a universe in which God has revealed himself to us is, again, an idea that laid the foundation, uh, you know, for modern day science. If you take a, a naturalistic view or an evolutionary view where you argue that the human mind is the product of, of an evolutionary process, then <laughs> why would you trust or believe anything that comes from the human mind? Why would you trust or believe our senses? Because the goal in evolution is survivability. It's not having creating organisms that have, have the capacity or the wherewithal to characterize the world and to understand what is true about the world. And so this is something that Charles Darwin himself lamented about, where he was concerned that if indeed evolution was the way to explain the origin of the humanity and the origin of the human mind, could we even do science? Could we even trust the human mind and what the human mind produces? Yes, you know, I like to tell my students that the Christian worldview is the beginning and the end of science. You know, it's the Christian worldview, as you stated, that provided the foundation and the framework for modern science to develop and flourish. And I say it's the end of science because it best explains, you know, the scientific data that we discover. And when scientists are trying to come to their conclusions regarding the scientific data. As you say, philosophy 
and even theology is involved here. So I like to say that the Christian worldview is the beginning and the end of the sciences. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's an excellent way, Pat, of, of, of framing it. And I would, I would concur 100%. But even the fact that astronomers, for example, have discovered that the universe has a beginning, right? Yeah. That everything that's part mm-hmm. of the universe came into existence at once at a, at a singularity event, and that there is design in the universe. I mean, these two ideas alone force you into, into theology, right? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. if you talk about design, then there must be a designer. If you talk about a beginning to the universe, there must be a cause outside the universe that brought the universe into existence. And so these are questions that are strongly theological in orientation, more so than they are scientific in orientation. So you truly can't escape the theology and the theological implications that come from science. Even if you try to, you really are, I think, suppressing the obvious conclusions and the obvious, I think, consequences, the obvious logical consequences of what science is discovering by suppressing theology and trying to divorce it from science. Yes, you know, Fuzz, one of the arguments against intelligent design is that, you know, intelligent design arguments are not falsifiable. What does that mean? And is this a legitimate argument against ID? Well, you know, a lot of people maintain that in order for an idea to truly be a bona fide scientific idea, there must be a way to falsify the idea. That is, when you put your idea in harm's way through scientific testing, that idea can survive if the results of the experiment or observation match what you would predict based on the the theory or the idea. And if the ideas produce predictions that are incompatible with the observations or the experimental results, then there's reason to think that that idea is incorrect. This is really the heart of science. And so for many people, falsifiability is very important. But, you know, I do actually believe that intelligent design ideas are falsifiable. For example, when we talk about elegant designs in biological systems that designs that point to the work or the reality of a creator, one way to falsify that argument is to point out or or to try to demonstrate that the designs in biology are fundamentally flawed, that they are, that those designs are less than, than what you would expect if an intelligent agent like the God of the Bible was responsible for those designs. So I think there are ideas in intelligent design that are clearly falsifiable, but there's also predictions that flow out of intelligent design that actually find experimental and observational affirmation. One example is the idea of junk DNA. You know, the idea that the genomes of organisms is littered with non-functional DNA. That was, uh, for many people, is considered to be a serious challenge to intelligent design. And I can remember uh, when I started with Reasons to Believe almost well over 20 years ago now, one of the first articles I wrote for RTB was on junk DNA. And I made the the prediction that we are going to discover function for junk DNA based on my convictions as a creationist and as an intelligent design proponent. And lo and behold, here we are over 20 years later, and we now know that most of the human genome appears to be functional, that what we thought was junk DNA actually is functional. So here's an instance where intelligent design is functioning 
as a scientific idea, you know, where there's a very clear prediction that has been fulfilled and that intelligent design isn't falsifiable can also be leveled against the evolutionary paradigm as well. Because I would argue that, again, going back to this philosophical concerns that we, we raised earlier, if evolution is being propped up by philosophical pre-commitments and it's the only game in town, then there's no way that you could ever truly falsify the evolutionary paradigm because you have granted it a status of being unfalsifiable by assuming a priori that all explanations for biological origins must be evolutionary in nature. Yeah. You know, one time, this is really interesting. We were listening to an evolutionist present his case. And when it came to Q&A time, it was really interesting. A PhD student, I believe, asked the speaker a question. He says, the fact that you're showing or proving ID arguments as false, doesn't that show that they are falsifiable? And the audience got a little chuckle there, and the the uh, speaker was kind of stumped over that question. That's an excellent point, right, is, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't right. say that intelligent design isn't science because it's the ideas are non-falsifiable and then come to the table with scientific arguments that, in effect, yeah. you claim are falsifying ideas. So that's a a point that's really, really well made. Well, I believe Richard Dawkins and others have argued, they said natural forces of nature act randomly and give the appearance of design. And an example they often point to is the fairy mushroom circles or the fairy circles, how you know mushroom spores come out of the mushroom in a circular fashion. And then when you wake up in the morning, there's this perfect circle there in the grass field or in the forest. And it looks like design, but it's not. It's just nature acting and giving the appearance of design. How do you answer that argument? Yeah, well, going back to the point I made earlier about SETI being an intelligent design research program or archeology span being an intelligent design research program can be really very instructive as we try to answer that particular objection. Because when you look at, for example, what an archaeologist does when they establish that a rock is the product of an intelligent agent is that they first of all note the appearance of design, right, which we would do for the example that you're using. Then what they do is they look to see are there any kind of natural process mechanistic mechanisms available that could produce those same features in that rock? Can you rule out natural process explanations as being the way to account for those features in that rock? And then last but not least, you would then say, well, what does it take to try to recreate something like that, you know, in a laboratory setting? Can we recreate those features that we think are designed? And what would it take for an intelligent agent to do something like that? So it's not just simply looking at the appearance of design, but there's other criteria that they bring to the table as well. So in the example that you point out, you could say, yes, it does look like it is designed. But then we, if we come to the table and say, but look, here's a natural process explanation for it, then it's like, well, maybe this actually isn't designed because there's a way we can explain it through natural process mechanisms, right? But, you know, but suppose we have, again, an, an object that does appear to be designed, but we can't explain it through natural process mechanisms, right? And that we, we realize that to try to produce something like that requires an enormous amount of ingenuity and intelligence, 
then we would be justified in concluding design. And so when it comes to like, let's say biochemical systems, and I'm you know, a biochemist by training, biochemical systems have the appearance of design. But when an evolutionary biologist tries to argue that those systems came about through evolutionary mechanisms, this is where that case for evolution unravels and where the case for design becomes strong. Because to explain the origin of biochemistry is in effect the origin of life problem. And nobody knows how chemical evolutionary processes could generate the very first cells, which would include the biochemical systems needed to establish life's existence. You know, and then there's work that's being done in synthetic biology where researchers are trying to produce protocells in the lab, starting with simple molecules. And that work clearly shows, again, ingenuity and intelligence on the part of the researchers is a critical part of creating protocells, that they just don't simply assemble by throwing the right molecules into a test tube. You have to have intelligent agents manipulating those systems in the just right way using an elaborate strategy and knowledge that's accumulated over a couple of centuries in order to pull that off. So by using the same criteria that an archeologist uses, we could actually make a robust case that biochemical systems are designed and so that the objection of the appearance of design really doesn't hold. Yeah, so you're listening to our interview with Dr. Fazale Rana, and we're talking about his new book here, Thinking About Evolution, produced by Reasons to Believe. And a lot of the issues we're talking about here and the questions that I've asked, you know, come from this book here. So we highly recommend it, and he expounds upon the issues we're talking about a lot more in the chapters of these books written by several Fazale Rana, but also some other great authors that have contributed to chapters here. Fuzz. Irreducible complexity has been a formidable argument against Darwin's theory. Explain that theory to us, irreducible complexity, and have the Darwinists been able to answer Michael Behe's argument? Yeah, well, the, the idea of irreducible complexity, as you pointed out, is an argument that was advanced by biochemist Michael Behe. And the idea here is that biochemical systems display a quality called irreducible complexity. And what is meant by that is that these systems are composed of a number of component parts that must interact in a precise way to essentially have overall function. And that if you remove one of the parts or even if one of the parts was fabricated just a little bit differently, that system would no longer have any kind of function. And so Behe argues that irreducible the complex systems have to come together simultaneously all at once. They can't come together in a stepwise manner, which would be required by evolutionary processes because a partial system doesn't have any function and therefore there's nothing for natural selection to operate on. And so for Behe, irreducible complexity is an, an indication that these systems are designed. And I would 100% concur with Michael Behe that irreducible complexity is a feature that is oftentimes characteristic of the designs that we would make as human designers and that biochemical systems are across the board irreducibly complex systems. So it's completely reasonable to think that these systems are indeed designed. Now, evolutionary biologists have come up with a counter explanation for how an irreducibly complex system could come about. 
And it's through a, a process called co-option where you would piecemeal systems together and those intermediary systems would have functional capabilities that would be distinct from the functional capability of the final system. And so they would argue that through a process of co-option, you could in a stepwise manner build irreducibly complex systems. The problem with this argument is, number one, is that we don't know of any examples that you can point to in the scientific literature of systems that have been clearly demonstrated to have evolved in that kind of way. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. That's honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran. Yeah.